All right, welcome back to the show. Another episode. Uh, Cassie, I would say this is probably our most informative episode, maybe for the listeners. I mean, we've done, there's been so much information, but I feel like this one really packs it all in. I don't know if you agree, but. Yeah, you know, they've all been great, very informative, but this one really dissects the anatomy and the structures being surgically repaired from a surgeon's point of view, not just from a therapist. Yeah, this is a very good, I think, CHT prep episode. Yes, absolutely. That's maybe a good way to look at this episode. But Cassie, can you tell our listeners who we talked to and what we talked about? Yeah, so this is one of our own hand surgeons. This is Dr. John Cherney. He's board certified for American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. He specializes in arthroscopic wrist, elbow, and shoulder, and special interest in reconstruction, especially with rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. He's a Wisconsin native. He's a Badger graduate. Woohoo! Go Badgers! <laughs> Steve is an Ohio State fan, so I just got to put that plug in there. Go Bucks! <laughs> Dr. Trini got his start in uh, Dean Hand Center in Madison, where he spent uh, 10 plus years there and then migrated up this way to the Fox Valley, which is known as Appleton in Wisconsin here. And then he started at the Hand to Shoulder Center in 2001. He does work closely with a physician assistant named Stephanie Knapp, and the two of them are a fantastic duel. And uh, he spends a lot of time with not only the therapists, his patients, and he's going to talk to us about all the uh, basic wrist surgeries, not even, I should say, more complex as well. Um, anything from trauma to um, arthritis, uh, reconstructive surgeries, you name it. Yeah, so buckle up. A lot of information here, but great episode to probably listen through multiple times, especially like I said, if you're prepping for your CHT exam. A common theme for our regular listeners has been that relationship between the physician and the therapist. And he really talks about what he wants his therapist to do, the communication. I think that's a really good takeaway towards the end of the episode he talked about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Make sure you guys click and subscribe whatever podcast platform you're listening to and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Steve and Cassie here. Thank you for joining us. Today we have a special guest in-house. We have one of our own doctors of the nine surgeons here. We have Dr. John Cherney, one of our surgeons. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Great. Um, why don't we just get started with uh, introducing yourself, kind of your path, your career, and how you ended up here. Oh, that's, a, that's an easy one. I uh, graduated from the University of Wisconsin Medical School in 1989, did an orthopedic surgery residency at University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinics, and uh, then I did a hand surgery fellowship in Cincinnati, Ohio under Peter J. Stern, who actually is 77 years old and still running the fellowship as we speak. Wow. Um, when I left there, I started practicing in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and I did hands uh, for the Dean Medical Center in St. Mary's Hospital. And I also did general orthopedics, including general trauma at that time. Um, after about six years of that, I left the university and St. Mary's and Madison to join a couple of longtime friends, Larry Livingood and Dave Toivonen here in, uh, in App Appleton and just specialized in the upper extremity, stopped doing femurs, hips, knees, ankles, feet, all that sort of stuff. Wow. So Madison grad, go Bucky. Go Bucky. 
go Bucky. Football, basketball, hockey, women's volleyball, big stuff. And we have a, also Ohio State, Mr. Steve, so we can get into that later. <laughs> That's not going to be easy if we're talking football. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, today we have, we're going to be talking about a lot of wrist surgeries, wrist anatomy. So we kind of covered our flexor tendons and our extensor tendons in previous podcasts. You can refer to those with uh, different speakers. So today we're really going to focus on the anatomy of the wrist and different wrist surgery since we have a surgeon in-house. So Dr. Cherney, why don't we get started with just talking about the basic anatomy between the carpal bones and the ligaments. And you can go in as depth as you want. And what do you think our speakers would, uh, or our um, uh, listeners. listeners, thank you, would enjoy listening to? Sure. Um, well, uh, the wrist actually starts at the radius and the ulna, the forearm bones, which end at the, uh, at the wrist joint. And then there's the proximal row of carpal bones, the scaphoid, the lunate, and the triquetrum. The pisiform is palmar to the triquetrum and forms a fulcrum for the flexor carpial naris tendon, which is a wrist flexor and ulnar deviator. Then there's the second row of bones, the trapezium, the trapezoid, the capitate, and the hamate, which articulate with the metacarpals and make a very complex and very, very functional joint, which allows many degrees of motion, including extension, flexion, ulnar deviation, radial de deviation, pronation, supination, and the uh, combinations such as the dart throwers motion, etc. The ligaments that hold these bones together are very complex, including the distal radial ulnar joint held by the TFCC and its ligaments, the interosseous membrane just proximal to that. There are the extrinsic ligaments to the wrist, including the dorsal intercarpal, dorsal radiocarpal ligaments, and many other smaller ligaments. On the palmar side, there are the arcuate ligaments, the radiocarpal ligament, the ulnocarpal ligament, and a variety of ligaments on the palm side extrinsic to the joint. And then there are the intrinsic ligaments, the scaphalunate interosseous ligament, the lunotriquetral interosseous ligaments are probably the two most studied and injured of the ligaments, but all of the, all of the bones are connected by ligaments. Uh, then there are the carpal metacarpal ligaments, um, which are stout and, uh, and, uh, a little less, perhaps a little less frequently injured and a little less addressed by surgeons. Let's talk about something more very common and, and I'd say bread and butter for surgery is what we see. Can we talk about the anatomy of the carpal tunnel. The carpal tunnel contains the flexor tendons to um, the fingers, the profundus tendons and the sublimus tendons, as well as the flexor tendon to the thumb. Uh, and the median nerve is probably the, the uh, most famous or infamous structure within the carpal tunnel. Uh, it is subject to injury from compression for uh, the well-known carpal tunnel syndrome, which is one of the more frequent problems we address here at hand to shoulder. That's a compression neuropathy of the median nerve, which typically causes numbness and tingling in the median distribution, the thumb, index, middle, and ring fingers. Um, it typically affects people when they're driving, when they're sleeping, um, and it can be quite readily addressed with non-surgical as well as surgical techniques to take the pressure off the nerve. The tendons running through the carpal tunnel are also susceptible to injury, but that's more typically a traumatic injury, such as a laceration. Um, then there are inflammatory conditions that can affect the tendons as well, including infections, uh, arthritis of various types like gout or rheumatoid arthritis being some of the more common ones. Um, but uh, 
the um, the tendons, the nerves uh, that run through the carpal tunnel are all amenable to surgical treatment for traumatic as well as inflammatory as well as degenerative type of conditions. That was excellent. I don't think you missed anything. You checked my list there. That's great. Oh, good. So good. happy to do that. So just a side question. What is the most common uh, muscle that you note is atrophied first with a like chronic carpal tunnel? Chronic carpal tunnel syndrome. One notes thenar atrophy and the abductor pollicis brevis is very frequently involved with that. From the outside, it's kind of difficult to... Uh, differentiate between the opponents, the flexor brevis and the abductor brevis, uh, and they all can be involved. The electromyographers that do the test that look into the severity and, and location of nerve compression will usually test the abductor brevis because it's fairly superficial. And that's the one with the nerve test that we often see abnormalities in suggesting fairly severe carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm, interesting. Okay, let's talk about the extensor side then. So we have the six compartments. Dorsal compartments, can you Six go that? Six dorsal compartments. Starting on the radial side is the first compartment, and uh, the mnemonic that no medical student ever forgets is sex lab, which stands for the short extensor and the long abductor. Those are the two tendons that run through the first compartment. The second compartment are the radial wrist extensors, the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis. The third compartment is only the extensor pollicis longus tendon, which kind of takes an angled course around Lister's tubercle on the radius and heads for the thumb and extends the thumb at the IP joint, giving that characteristic thumbs up that we ask patients to do during the physical exam. The fourth compartment are the extensors to the, the fingers, including the proprius and the communist to the index middle ring and the small finger, <clears throat> excuse me, the fifth compartment is the extensor proprius to the small finger and the sixth is the extensor carpial narus. Let's transition into, I think we got the anatomy well covered. And then for our listeners, if you're really curious about the Flexor and extensor tendon anatomy in great detail, as Cassie mentioned. We do have other episodes with Rebecca Noduski and Joshua MacDonald that cover those. I believe it's episodes six and eight. But let's go into wrist surgeries on the volar surfaces. Kind of describe in basic detail, Doc, for us, what do you do as the surgeon and a little bit of the synopsis of the rehab? So with bread and butter hand therapy, carpal tunnel release. What's happening in that surgery? What are we doing? Sure, the, the carpal, tunnel, um, carpal tunnel syndrome is a compression neuropathy of the median nerve at the wrist, as we sort of already touched on. Uh, the actual cause of carpal tunnel syndrome, nobody really knows. There are a variety of theories. There are a bunch of associated activities or conditions um, that may or may not, we think more likely do predispose one to carpal tunnel syndrome. For example, high force and repetitive activities, exposure to vibratory um, tools, high force grip, awkward wrist positioning, all tend to raise the pressure within the carpal tunnel. And the syndrome itself is manifest by pain or numbness or tingling in the distribution of the median nerve. Patients often complain of uh, awakening at night with a feeling of numbness or tingling in the hand. Um, driving a car tends to aggravate uh, aggravate the symptoms, riding a bike, putting pressure on the palm or exposure to vibration. And uh, in some people, it's occasional and not particularly bothersome and is easily treated by um, activity modification. For example, if you ride your bike for 45 minutes, your hand goes numb. You just don't ride it so long. Um, the uh, Sometimes people wear a splint at night to put their wrist in a more protected position. 
But uh, by the time they get to see me, many of them have already tried some of those things and it's the, the symptoms are limiting and not tolerable to them. And so the invasive options we have um, would include a, a steroid injection into the carpal tunnel, which we do here under ultrasound guidance typically um, to avoid injury to the nerve or to the tendon to make sure the medicine's going where we want it to go. Cortisone injection in general is not my favorite treatment for carpal tunnel because two main reasons, it tends to be temporary and the success rate is in my hands is somewhere in the 60 to 70% range. Um, surgical treatment is basically uh, decompressing the nerve and that uh, is done by releasing the transverse carpal ligament, which is a ligament that it, uh, sort of making maybe oversimplifying here, but runs from the trapezium basically to the uh, to the hook of the hamate on the palmar side of the wrist. And uh, if one were to cut that ligament, it increases the volume of the canal enough, some studies have suggested approximately 15%, uh, to take the pressure off the nerve and allow the body to reestablish re re the circulation to the nerve and the normal conduction and make the numbness and tingling better. Sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes the nerve never recovers. We find the, the best results, uh, well, let me put it this way, um, sort of negative prognosticators include smoking history, age over 65, um, long duration or severe severity of symptoms or findings on EMG. But still, the success rate is quite high in terms of improving the, that feeling of nighttime paresthesia or numbness and resolution of the numbness during the day in many cases. Let's talk a little bit about differential diagnosis for a second. What about pronator syndrome? How are you differentiating that between like carpal tunnel syndrome? and Because I, I used to see a lot of patients at uh, my first job where I didn't have the luxury of working you know, in-house with surgeons and I'd get a script from just a general practitioner and it would say the moon is yellow. Like it'd say just anything on there for different stuff. So what are some differentiators for our listeners out there listening to that between CTR so, and pronators? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And um, if patients are really astute in terms of differentiating their own symptoms, um, the uh, palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve comes off of the median nerve proximal to the carpal tunnel. So if the compression is at the carpal tunnel, theoretically at least, the palmar cutaneous nerve shouldn't be involved. Now that supplies the thenar eminence and the radial side of the palm. So if the patient says, points to the base of their thumb and says, this area is really numb, that tells you it's probably not simple carpal tunnel syndrome. There's something going on more proximal and pronator syndrome would be would jump more to the forefront of the differential for me in that situation. And the other thing is the physical exam. Are they tender in the area of the pronator? Do they have a positive tenel in the area of the pronator? Um, and I always, as part of my exam, I always examine the pronator just because patients often don't differentiate. They sometimes say it's my whole hand and they don't tell where exactly the distribution of the paresthesia is. But that, if a patient knows exactly where, where they're feeling, that can be very useful for differentiating. Electrodiagnostic testing can sometimes tell the difference too. Sure. With your clinical exam for somebody who's coming in with paresthesia, different neural symptoms, are you going further proximal? I'm glad you spoke to that because I feel that myself as a clinician, I would get somebody for carpal tunnel syndrome and I kind of did the Hey, some soft tissue massage over the transverse carpal ligament, some nerve glides, maybe some ultrasound, then I would splint them. And I was really failing some of those 
you know, patients early on in my career when it might have been more of a double crust syndrome? My typically my typical new patient exam who complains of paresthesia in the median distribution does include examination of the pronator. I always do at least a roost test to see if thoracic outlet compression may be playing a role. And I always check their neck range of motion and get a history of any neck issues. Like, for example, if I have somebody who sounds like who has referred to me for carpal tunnel syndrome, but says to me that it gets much worse whenever I sneeze, that would make you think a cervical disc rather than carpal tunnel. Yeah. And that's where the electrodiagnostic testing, if there's any, especially if there's any question or any doubt, can help can be one more piece to the puzzle or ultrasound exam of the nerve can also be useful. There's growing body of data suggesting that ultrasound may be as useful as EMG for, mm. for diagnosing carpal tunnel. Interesting. Um, um, can you speak a little bit about pillar pain to our listeners? Pillar pain. Yeah. Pillar pain is, is probably the most common adverse effect of carpal tunnel surgery. And what it is, is, Soreness in on the radial, radial more than ulnar in my experience, but side of the incision. After the incision's healed, a lot of patients will say the numbness and tingling has resolved, but they have pain in the palm. And I believe, I think most surgeons would agree that that, be, that comes from pain. It's not strictly incisional pain. It's pain from the cut edge of the ligament. So there are a lot of different techniques to try and minimize the skin incision, but they don't, no matter how you do the operation, one has to section that transverse carpal ligament. So you're going to have two cut ends of ligament that can be potentially sore. If you don't cut the ligament, you don't get that. So if you do it endoscopically, if you do it with a string, if you do it with a knife, you're still cutting the ligament. And so pillar pain can ensue from any approach to cutting the transverse carpal ligament. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing to tell patients that this is what it is. It's going to get better. There's, uh, they often will ask me, can I operate on it again to make it, make it better? And the answer is no, that'll prolong everything. It'll make it worse. The actual treatment is things that you guys do in terms of stimulation and, and deep tissue massage and modalities such as ultrasound and time. Uh, and use. And a lot of patients will get better just from trying to get back to their regular activities. Yeah. What are some of your go-tos, Cassie, for pillar pain? Mm. I'd like to know. You know, I would definitely say just stretching, you know, lumbrical stretching, intrinsic stretching, um, massaging, sometimes the ultrasound, but I really haven't found uh, modalities that are a huge improvement. It's more of like, uh, really, you know, decrease that repetitious use and just massaging and rest. Thank you. what I do. You'll be the next <laughs> guest. There we go. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> how often, Dr. Turney, do you see, and this might be kind of a controversial question, but how often do you see redos coming from an external doctor or um, a referral in that they've already had the surgery and they need a redo or the full transverse ligament wasn't fully cut to give them relief? Thankfully, it's not as common as it used to be, um, but I probably see... Oh, goodness, that's a great question. I'm going to have to think about that for a second. But uh, new patients with carpal tunnel syndrome during a typical clinic, I'll probably see three or four new patients. Um, and wow. so maybe maybe six to eight a week, new patients with carpal tunnel. And of the ones that have been tr previously treated elsewhere, it's probably... I'll probably see one a week, I would guess. Wow. Maybe one, to week, one a week to one every other week, something like that. And some of them are just because um, uh, some of them were 
had a carpal tunnel release for what turned out to be arthritis of the base of the thumb or some other unrelated mm -hmm. problem. Um, some of them have had incomplete releases and very rarely, and this is the worst one, they come in with a with an injured nerve. They have mm. a laceration to the median nerve and that's a real problem. That's a that's a difficult reconstruction. And uh, there, I always tell those patients that uh, you and I are gonna be together for a year or more. Mm. So. That's tough. That's tough news to break. Okay, so let's move on to ligaments. Um, so if you want to just touch a little bit on when you notice an SL ligament problem, like what are the tests and some of the diagnoses that you do and um, what kind of surgery are you doing for sure. SL? So if a patient is referred to me for a scaphalunate ligament injury, it's usually because they've had an event, a, a fall of some kind, and they have an x-ray that shows a static deformity or a, or a gap between the scaphoid and the lunate. Um, and... Um, to start the discussion, it's a difficult problem. The first thing I will do is make sure they're tender over the scaphalunate ligament to suggest that there may have been an acute injury there. I also will x-ray the other side because there are a lot of patients that for whatever reason have a diastasis on both sides. Maybe that's the way they're designed. Maybe it's longstanding. Maybe it's related to something completely separate like uh, Oh, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease or pseudogout, that can lead to a scaphalunate diastasis. But if it looks like they have a scaphalunate injury that is acute, I will often get an MRI scan to see if there is um, fluid around the ligament suggesting it's a more acute injury. On physical exam, I do the scaphoid shift test, which is basically holding the, the uh, forearm in a neutral position and then trying to displace the scaphoid dorsally by putting dorsal word pressure on the scaphoid tuberosity and ulnarly deviating the wrist, radially and ulnarly deviating the wrist. In radial deviation, the scaphoid is usually flexed and you can actually subluxate it and it will reduce when you ulnarly deviate and produce a characteristic clunk, which often hurts. And if you can get that, you get a positive MRI, then it looks like you have a traumatic scaphalunate ligament tear. Now we know um, that the results with surgical repair of a scaphalunate ligament with or without capsulodesis or reinforcement or uh, techniques of that nature um, are the most successful if you get to them within this first six weeks. Now, some studies would say four weeks. After that time, it's much more difficult to get a, a quality repair. In addition, arthritis sometimes ensues. So if it's a less acute, if it's an acute injury, I'll fix it. I will fix it, pin it, and reinforce it with capsule. And that usually works pretty well. One of the common scenarios for that is a perilunate dislocation mm -hmm. where there's a scaphalunate tear among other ligamentous injuries. It's a more global injury to the wrist. But for whatever reason, those repairs do pretty well because we usually get to them within hours. The more chronic ones are, it's a much more difficult conversation to have with the patient because you know the ligament is somewhat atretic at that point and the repair is not sturdy at all. Um, and so it has to be re reinforced in some way. And so there are multiple different ways to do that from a flexor carpi radialis tendon transfer, palmaris longus tendon, ligament augmentation devices, various capsulodeses. And the fact that there are so many different approaches tells you that there is no one that's clearly superior. Otherwise, we'd all do that one. And we usually pin the joint for a minimum of eight weeks after 
pin the scaphoid to the capitate and the scaphoid to the lunate for a minimum of eight weeks. In the old Mayo Clinic literature, they would pin them for up to 12 weeks and wow. immobilize them for up to six months for oh that gosh. procedure. No matter, no matter what one does, and there's a variety of literature with multiple different techniques, varying lengths of follow-up, the usual outcome is the scaphoid diastasis or the separation between the bones usually recurs radiographically. The patients often lose some wrist flexion, but clinically they seem to do okay. They don't seem to have as much pain. Uh, we've had a couple of professional football players come in here, not within the last 15 years that have had acute scaphoid injuries. And those are kind of the easy ones because we know when it happened. We know it's acute. They're young people with good tissue. For the most part, they do what we tell them. Um, and uh, we've had some pretty good results with acute repairs with those. But the more typical case is somebody who gets hurt at work in their 40s. They come in with a scaphalunate uh, ligament disruption, and you don't know how old it is. So before I commit, if they want to go all in on surgical correction, what I do is I scope them first. And if there's any arthritis at all, I abort the procedure. I'm not going to do a ligament reconstruction, pin them for eight weeks, then rehab them for another three months for a joint that's already arthritic because I know I'm basically doomed to failure. Those people, and most of the people around here are pretty reasonable. They say, let's rehab it. Let's do some splinting, some range of motion, some strengthening. And if it goes bad, I'll do a proximal carpectomy or a four bone fusion later. And I can talk about that whenever it comes up. Yes. Yeah. So um, what are the x-rays called that you're taking to note that there's a static or a dynamic problem? So what are the positions that you so order? So if it's static, you can see it on a straight PA x-ray. But looking for the more subtle dynamic ones, the lateral x-ray will show the scaphoid is starting to slide out the dorsum of the scaphoid fossa, the radius sometimes. And then there's a clenched fist view, which statically loads correction dynamically loads the scaphalunate interval and will sometimes create a diastasis when there isn't one at rest. Those are the main views that I get for, and I will always get a scaphoid view as well to look for an occult fracture of the scaphoid bone. Um, okay, let's move on to LT ligament. So the other side of the wrist. The LT ligament is, um, in my experience, a little bit more forgiving than the scaphalunate ligament. Um, I've had some cases with people with ulnar-sided wrist pain who have an isolated LT tear that have responded to simple pinning. Those are usually injuries that are less than three months old without a significant diastasis known on radiograph. If their uh, instability is mild to moderate, very often they can just be debrided and they'll do okay. If it's in the context of ulna impaction, however, which is where I see most of them, you'll often will see the ulna impacting into the lunate, which is probably secondarily led to escape lunate instability situation. Those respond very nicely to tightening the ulnocarpal ligament, which most of us here do by shortening the ulna. And what we do is we take about three millimeters out of the ulna, shorten it, that gets rid of the impaction of the ulna on the lunate and the triquetrum, and it tightens the ulnocarpal ligament, and it often will restore stability uh, and create an asymptomatic ligament injury to the, hmm. the, the injury is still there, but the patients feel better. In my hands, that's a pretty reliable operation for that problem. Okay. Well, um, and then let's keep going further all in early. Let's talk about the TFCC. What are some of the 
tests you're doing and just kind of common procedures, I guess, performed. TFCC over there. is um, when I was in training, people called it the low back pain of hand surgery. It was like mysterious, hard to get, hard to improve. But we haven't had that much trouble with it here. Um, there's two main categories of TFCC injury. There's the traumatic and then there's the degenerative. And uh, Dr. Palmer, who trained our own Dr. Uh, Toyvin and is kind of the architect of the um, TFCC pathology and classifications and so on. And they're very abstruse and long and complicated, but they basically boil down to traumatic, which are largely peripheral tears, and uh, degenerative tears, which are more central tears. Uh, to diagnose one, you take the history, and it's typically a fall on an outstretched hand with or without pronation of the forearm and pain and swelling on the ulnar side of the wrist. And one thing I've found is patients often say that at the moment of impact, I had a, a shot of numbness or a lancinating pain on the dorsum and ulnar side of my hand. And I think that's probably because they're tweaking their cutaneous branch of their ulnar nerve when at the moment of impact. And that's usually suggestive to me. That tells me that the TFCC may, have, may likely have been involved. And then we'll examine the extensor carpial narrus, which sits right there. We want to make sure that that is not unstable or not swollen or not particularly tender. The TFCC, I'll check that with passive ulnar deviation compared to active ulnar deviation with the tendon more being probably more painful with active and the TFCC more involved with passive, but in an acute injury, it all hurts. Um, and then you look for disarray ulnar joint instability for a severe ligament injury involving the dorsal palmar uh, radiocarpal ligaments of the TFCC. X-rays with or without a clenched fist. Um, a clenched fist will make the radius recess and make the ulna look relatively longer. That can be suggestive. Um, and then more uh, advanced imaging like MRI scan. or uh, I haven't used ultrasound for for TFCC, but I imagine it's probably coming and there are places that probably do it. I don't know much about it, but MRI are very good for, and of course the gold standards are arthroscopy. Then you can tell if it's a more central perforation, which is usually degenerative and usually not repairable because the blood supply is not as reliable in the central disc versus a peripheral tear, which tends to be more likely traumatic in my experience, but also uh, very amenable to repair because there's good blood supply out there. The suture techniques are pretty reliable. And uh, I always tell the patients that if it's repairable, it's a good news, bad news sort of scenario because I can make it closer to what it was, more anatomic. Um, but the rehab is longer because you have to protect the re repair, which involves casting, avoiding pronation and supination for a period of time, protective splinting, and gradual return to extension pronation, supination, and you guys, I see them for an hour, and you guys see them for months after that, unfortunately. We do. <laughs> we do. What's your typical splint that you like to order? Are you just a, a straight who? Are you a Munster? I like to limit rotations. So I, for years, I was a straight Munster. Then Connie, in our therapy department, told me that she would prefer a um, long arm to limit rotation. And so I think it's it's therapist dependent, but um, but I prefer the Munster because I like a little elbow motion. Uh, I know they're harder to make and probably less comfortable for the patient. But um, and some people do even do the hinged orthosis with the lock, and that works in some scenario as well. Yeah. Okay, that was a great overview of the ligament structures of the wrist. So now let's kind of focus our time on the bone structure. So starting on the radial side, can you briefly touch on the trap? 
trapezoid uh, ectomy, uh, trapezium ectomy, um, as far as like the CMC arthroplasty. Oh yeah, that's a very common problem and a very common procedure. Is that our number one procedure done? I feel like that's, I always it's, tell- I would say fingertips and carpal tunnel are probably number one and two, but uh, but trapezium is our probably biggest, our most frequent big operation. And when I say big operation, I mean more than a six weeks rehab. Got it. Um, but yeah, it's very common. It's uh, uh, women much more frequently than men. Um, one of the articles I read that looked at this back in the day when I was designing a study 30 years ago to look into various techniques for treating this, found that it was 10 women for every man that has this problem. Hmm. Uh, most women tell me that's because they work so much harder than men. <laughs> I'm, not Agreed. Sure. I'm not sure that's the whole story. <laughs> but certainly it's part of it. Um, and uh, what it is, it, it appears that for some reason, the stability at the trapezial first metacarpal joint is uh, compromised for some reason, traumatic wear and tear, hormonal issues. Uh, there's a lot of discussion as to what exactly the etiology is, um, but it causes asymmetric stress between the cartilage surfaces, which leads to wear and tear. Family history certainly plays a role. Um, patients who have generalized osteoarthritis are more likely to get it at the base of the thumb. Um, and then the, the, the typical patient will come in with complaining of pain at the base of the thumb that's been going on and worsening for years. They have difficulty with pinch and grasp. And on examination, they very often will have an adducted thumb metacarpal, a prominence at the base of the thumb. And the kind of classic test is the grind test where, which is kind of an unfortunate name, but kind of that's what it is. You actually load the uh, thumb metacarpal and create dorsal and palmarward force. And very often there is a painful crepitus. It crunches and it hurts when you do that. I usually look at the x-ray first because I know which ones are really going to hurt. So I don't push them very hard. Um, but if it hurts there, um, the x-ray there are different stages from minimal change to small osteophytes to large osteophytes to uh, stage four is uh, arthritis on both sides of the trapezium. So STT arthritis as well as basal joint arthritis. The treatment options include non-surgical stuff, including braces, medication by mouth topical or by injection, formal therapy, including modalities, um, splints, um, and I've tried a variety of splints over the years. And the one that my patients seem to accept the most are the neoprene ones, which are uh, supportive, but still functional. The rigid ones are more supportive, but a lot of patients complain that they just can't do what they want to do with them. They're, they're maybe better for relieving pain, but they, they aren't, don't seem to be as functional. So I've had more patients reject those than the neoprene ones. Um, cortisone injection can be done with or without um, ultrasound guidance. I usually do it without because I've been doing it that way for 30 years and it's a fairly easy joint for me to hit. The response is very variable. Um, I had uh, my personal record is I had one lady that I injected at the base of the thumb. She came back 12 years later and said it helped for 12 years. Could I have another one? I said, absolutely, you can have another one. I shot her again and she came back three months later, extremely disappointed that it had only helped for three months this time. <laughs> and I had to break it to her that that's more typical. And I had one lady who told me I made her worse and she smacked me with her purse and said she will never forgive me, but then she had surgery and she liked that. So. <laughs> 
The surgery for basal joint arthritis, I'm doing it essentially the same way as I did it in 1994. Um, not much, lots of has come and gone, but nothing has ever been shown to be better. And the reason I started doing it this way back then uh, was it had nine year published follow-up and the results were still quite good at nine years. And, and it was the way Dr. Stern who trained me did them. And, um, and so that's the way I've done it. And I've been watching the literature for something that's better. And I've seen different gizmos come and go, the, the ceramic spheres, the different constrained arthroplasties that are cemented in, the tightrope. Some people use anchors to, uh, to support the tent ligament graft. But I've been able to stay free of gizmos, which keeps the cost down a little bit. And it also eliminates the risk of hardware problems. Um, the way I do it is to remove the entire trapezium, um, protect the flexor carpi radialis tendon. I still split the FCR tendon in half. A lot of surgeons take the whole thing. If the tendon is healthy, I take half of it. And there's two reasons I do that. One is it's usually enough. And uh, number two, if 10 years from now I have to redo it, I can take the other half. If mm, I want to. Smart. Um, the reason that Burton and Pellegrini, I believe the guys that originally described the operation got away from doing the entire, or got away, excuse me, got away from dividing the tendon in half was they had problems with flexor carpi radialis tendonitis afterwards. There were some patients who had a sore forearm for months after the operations and they, the treatment for that they found was to take out the rest of the tendon. So they thought, why not just take the whole tendon? We'll get rid of that problem. Of the last 1,500 of these I've done, I've had one patient complain of FCR tendonitis, and I went out and took out her tendon, and she did fine. So I still do half the tendon when I can. Um, the rehab involves uh, immobilization for about a month, and this is still the way Burton and Pellegrini did it, to my knowledge. Immobilize it for a month, uh, then partial immobilization for a month, and then strengthening for a month. And most people are back to their regular activity. Some go back as quickly as eight weeks, but the typical is about 12 weeks. Some are longer, but typical is about 12. Yeah. Who, which surgeons did, I, I worked next to a surgeon in Scottsdale who, you know, did the suspension arthroplasty, but he used the palmaris longus. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. Like... Um, Thompson. Uh, there was a guy named Thompson who did something called the abductor plasty or the suspension plasty. And what yeah. he did was he suspended the thumb with the abductor tendon, which he would drill through uh, the base of the metacarpal. So it's basically the opposite. The FCR yeah. is attached to the metacarpal. We run it through a drill hole in the metacarpal of uh, the thumb metacarpal. The Thompson takes the abductor, leaves it attached to the thumb, but then he's got the hole, the hole at the base of the where the trapezium had been, the void basically evacuated by the trapezium. So he would take the palmaris, roll that into a ball and stuff it in. Yeah. And that was his so-called anchovy arthroplasty. When I trained at the University of Wisconsin in the 80s, that's the way the hand surgeon was doing it there. He called it a Thompson suspension plasty. Um, the, uh, there are some people that don't put anything in the void and simply do a trapeziectomy. In fact, the first operation ever described for basal joint arthritis was done by a guy named, it's either Gervis or Jervis, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it rightly, but G-E-R-V-I-S, I think it was in 1949, and he removed his own, and I believe he talked his assistant through it, and just horked out the trapezium and called it a day. Wow. And he said it was good. He said he liked it, and later on he had the other side done. I'll, I'll yank out any bones you need me to. So if you need I me in the OR, well. And anesthetized if I have my trapezium removed. <laughs> yeah. Not just a local. 
Okay, so what makes you decide to take the partial trapezoid? Is it just based on x-ray or once you're in there? Both. The x-ray usually tells you if you need to, but I always look at it when I'm in there. I slide a little tool called a freer elevator between the scaphoid and the trapezoid, and if the cartilage looks healthy, I leave it alone. If it looks degenerative, if it's if we're looking at bone on bone, then I'll take out half of the trapezoid. And a good friend of mine in Spokane, a hand surgeon named Henry Lynn, takes out the entire trapezoid. Oh, wow. And um, because uh, he did it actually accidentally a couple of times because sometimes they're small and when you try to take out half, it breaks and you wonder what to do. So he took it out and found that it worked out just as well. And he, I think he's writing it up, but I don't think he's done yet. So what fills in that space? Just your scaphoid moves Scar up? tissue. Wow. Just scar. The, the, it, it supports the index and middle metacarpals to some extent, and the ligaments between those metacarpals are so robust that usually nothing bad happens. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, we, stay tuned to our listeners. We're going to have a whole podcast on LRTI rehab. So if you're looking for more of that, that will be the next podcast coming out uh, with Kristen Valdez from Utah. Okay, now moving over to, we have STT fusion following that. Boy, is there a lot to say about that, and it's mostly historic. Um, when I was in training, there was a surgeon at Yale named, I think it was at Yale, um, named H. Kirk Watson, who did hundreds and hundreds of STT fusion. He would do it for all sorts of indications. It was his procedure of choice for scapulonate instability. It was his procedure of choice for STT arthritis, um, even scapulocapitate arthritis, I think he'd do it for. And um, so it was the procedure of choice in the world of hand surgery in the 80s for, for those issues. Then we found that um, other investigators weren't able to produce good results with scapulonate instability with an STT fusion. It was largely abandoned for that. And it would just relegated to STT joint arthritis to be treated with an STT fusion. Now the pendulum has swung even farther away from that in that uh, I honestly can't recall the last time I did an STT joint fusion because if a patient has STT joint arthritis, most of them also have basal joint arthritis, mm -hmm. at, at least to some extent. And so for those patients, since the, the trapezium excision and partial trapezoid excision is so reliable in my hands, that's what I do for that problem. There are some people who will simply resect the STT joint. Now, if I ever have somebody who has isolated STT joint arthritis with no basal joint arthritis, I think that's what I will do. But I, that case hasn't come up yet for me. Mm -hmm. um, Every time I see somebody with STT joint arthritis, when I do the grind test, they say that hurts too. And that's usually enough for me to, to, do, the, to do the other procedure. Hmm. Okay. Um, when would you do a proximal carpectomy then? Also a great question. And a huge, probably could do a whole podcast on the PRC. Uh, proximal carpectomy is my procedure of choice for um, slack wrist, slack arthritis, which is a acronym standing for scapulonate advanced collapse. It's the arthritis that ensues after a scapulonate injury. So if a patient has arthritis between the radius and the scaphoid, for any reason, scaphoid non-union, scaphoid, uh, scapulonate ligament injury, or a uh, articular fracture of the radial styloid that hasn't healed properly or has gone on to traumatic arthritis, as long as the, um, lunate fossa and the head of the capitator are in good condition, I think the proximal carpectomy is a great operation. I think people do well. I think the rehab is, is relatively 
simpler. They're in a cast. In my hands, they're in a cast for three weeks. Uh, and then they go into removable splint for three more. And at six weeks, the splint becomes optional for them. So the rehab is a little quicker. The alternative procedure for slack arthritis is a four-bone fusion. And, and I was just going to ask. There we go. Let's hear it. Yeah. The, this, the, and this is the discussion I have with patients all the time. There are some studies that suggest that of the two, there may be a trend toward greater grip strength with this four-bone fusion, and there may be a trend toward greater range of motion with the PRC. But I think that's a pretty soft distinction. I think that they're pretty close, and the long-term results turn out to be pretty close. Um, the advantage to the four-bone fusion is if the head of the capitate is degenerative, then you do if the head of the capitate is degenerative and you make a new joint between the capitate and the luminate fossa, the radius, you're replacing one degenerative joint with another. For whatever reason, the cap, the radial lunate joint is usually spared in slack arthritis. So if you, you can almost always fuse the four ulnar bones of the carpus, the capitate, the lunate, the triquetrum, and the hamate, and preserve that radial lunate joint. But that involves getting a fusion to heal. So um, so there's a risk of non-union, which is not a risk with proximal carpectomy. There's a risk of hardware problems. Um, and you have to, a patient has to be in a cast, uh, for six to eight weeks after that operation and union based on radiograph. Um, so you're not that long ago, there was a prejudice toward, uh, four bone fusion in younger patients because it was felt that the radial lunate joint would hold up better long run you know, over a duration of 40 years. But there have been some recent literature suggesting that may not even be true. It may be that it holds up about as well as the new radiocapitate joint. So I like the PRC. If I think I can do it, I do it. If the head of the capitate is trashed and the radiolunate joint is good, I do the four-bone fusion. I get permission from the patients to do either one before surgery. I'll tell them that I'll do what I would do if it were my wrist. And there are some cases where the uh, lunate fossa of the radius is not in good shape and the head of the capitate is not in good shape. And then you can even do an interposition where you basically do a PRC, you remove a portion of the head of the capitate and interpose some capsule. That one you have to pin for a period of time because the inherent stability is not the same. But even those do pretty well in my hands. I haven't done many of those. If the head of the capitate is good and the lunate fossa is trash, then we do a radioscape lunate fusion and preserve the mid-carpal joint. I love to preserve a joint if I can. I prefer that to a total wrist fusion. A total wrist fusion eliminates all flexion extension, all radial ulnar deviation, all dart thrower type motion. It's a pretty reliable pain reliever. Um, and I think, I think in most cases it's superior to a wrist arthroplasty, but um, it's, uh, it eliminates the motion. And so if you can, and you can always do that as a bailout. Suppose you do a PRC in a 30 year old and 20 years later he develops arthritis. You can always do a fusion later at that time if you need to. Well, well I think you said it all on the bowler surface. Why don't we, oh, maybe we didn't. Maybe there was one I missed. What are you? What do you want to go over, Cassie, further? Let's just talk about a pisiformectomy. What point do oh, you yeah, decide good. to do that? So the pisiformectomy, the pisiform is the little bone on the palmar pinky side of the of the wrist um, that 
uh, is susceptible to arthritis, it basically serves as a fulcrum for the flexor carpi ulnaris tendon. The flexor carpi ulnaris tendon drapes over the pisiform and attaches there and to some fascia in the area, the hypothenar musculature, and probably indirectly or somewhat directly to the, the uh, uh, base of the small finger metacarpal um, and the hamate. But arthritis between the pisiform and the triquetrum, um, patients present with pain in that area. And we get a special radiograph called the piezotriquetral view or a slightly supinated lateral view of the wrist, which profiles that joint. And if there's any question, you can get an MRI or a CT scan, but usually the piezotriquetral joint gives us enough, uh, a view gives us enough information. And so if there's a degenerative joint and there's pain in that area, I very often will do an injection for diagnostic as well as therapeutic purposes. A cortisone and local anesthetic injection into that joint very often gives long lasting relief. But if it gives temporary relief, the odds of a good result with surgery are quite high. And the surgery involves preserving the tendon and its fascial attachments, longitudinally splitting it and basically removing the trapezium, uh, correction, removing the piece of form. And uh, the success, success rate with that is quite high. Most patients feel better. Um, theoretically, they could lose flexion strength of the wrist because the fulcrum's not there anymore, but I've never yet had a patient complain of that. Mm -hmm. oh. So all of the procedures that we just talked about for bony structure, when you get that patient that's, let's say they fell at work like a year ago, a year and a half ago, and now they're trying to prove that this was a fall at work, it's work comps trying to fight it because it was so long ago, wasn't reported, and now it's arthritic. How do you determine, yes, this is a work injury, no, this is not? So if I'm seeing the patient a year after uh, injury, that's a tough one. Um, it's a lot based on the history. For example, if they never had, uh, never sought medical treatment for that problem before, they if it's on record somewhere that they sought medical attention for pain after that, we can make the case. I don't make the determination though. All I can do is give my opinion. The insurance company can accept or reject my opinion and they can find another physician who may or may not agree with me and they can take whatever opinion they like. And this gets maybe a little away from wrist uh, um, anatomy and surgery and so on, wrist disorders. But ultimately in Wisconsin, the patient can appeal those decisions and it ultimately comes down to a review board that ultimately will decide is it work related or not. Degenerative problems are, are much harder to prove. And, and I tell the patients that we have to be able, in Wisconsin, we have to be able to say within a uh, reasonable degree of medical probability, which means 51%, is it more or less, more likely than not that this was caused by work. And if it meets that standard, then I'll go on record as saying yes. But if in my opinion, it doesn't, for example, if they have a basal joint arthritis after a year after a fall and I get an x-ray the other side and I see it on that side, it's less likely to be caused by work. Mm, that's a tough call to make sometimes. Very tough. Mm. So now I think we'll go to the dorsal surface, <laughs> something that I feel that it can be challenging to treat, especially like in gymnasts or maybe tennis players or bosses. Carpal boss is a prominence at the metacarpal joint, um, usually the index and or middle finger where they join the carpus. Um, they often show up in the decade of the, the 20s um, or the third decade of life. Um, often they're asymptomatic, often they are symptomatic. Mm -hmm. They're apparent on um, 
examination, they usually are in a different location from a ganglion. A lot of patients will be sent to me with a ganglion when in fact it is a, a carpal boss or sometimes called a metacarpal boss because it's both the carpal and the metacarpal bone that are prominent. Um, but in some patients, they're symptomatic. The cause is not well known. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me that it's traumatic or degenerative in a lot of cases, but the fact that it shows up at age 25 in some people kind of calls that into question. Somebody who has a clear traumatic etiology, like a boxer or something like that, then it's a little less controversial, but sometimes they just show up. And their the, the treatment options are like everything else, surgical and non-surgical. A lot of patients, as I said, have them and they don't bother them. A lot of patients, they do bother. Sometimes the extensor tendons will snap over a carpal boss as the patient radially or ulnarly deviates their wrist. And that can be very annoying. And I've even seen one case of a tendon rupture associated with a, with a carpal boss. The surgical treatment is not as simple as patients think. And I always use that exact phrase with them. I say this, we're going to remove, if you want me to remove it, I'll remove it, but it's not as simple as you think. Um, what we have to do is we have to chip off the bone until we see healthy articular cartilage and try to create a convexity, try to create a concavity out of a convexity. And we often leave a prominence because we have to protect the insertion of the extensor carpi radialis brevis tendon where it inserts on the base of the metacarpal. That's always the most prominent thing after we're done. And patients will see that and say, I still have a bump here. And it's like, that's where the tendon attaches and I can't get rid of that. That has to stay. And after there's so little soft tissue between the base of the metacarpal and the outside, that any little bit of scar tissue, any little bit of swelling, any little, little bit of hematoma looks like a mountain to them. So they'll come in to see me on their first post-operative visit and say, oh, great, my bump is bigger than it was before surgery. That's <laughs> invariable. So I always do my best to tell them that's exactly what's going to happen. And once if they're prepared for it, it's much better. Long term, patients do pretty well. I've not had one recur in the last 30 years, knock wood. Um, but um, the rehab's a little longer than they expect as well, because there is a lot of scar tissue and it's pretty sore for a while. So I tell people, if it doesn't bug you, live with it. But if it's irritating the tendons and it's painful, cortisone injection, in my experience, sometimes it helps temporarily, but it usually isn't therapeutic. And we know the diagnosis, so I'm not doing them typically for diagnostic purposes. So if it bugs them enough, I'll get rid of it. All right, so dorsal soft tissue problems. So let's start with a ganglion cyst. How many times have you heard, Doc, just get the book and smash it? Let's Every, save the money. Probably 75% of the patients say that. It's <laughs> got, and it has to be the Bible, I think, because that was the biggest book in the house back ah, in the day. Yes. Um, but yeah, that, I, I hear that all the time. The etiology of ganglia, nobody really knows. The most common site is the dorsum of the wrist, usually in the area of the scaphalunian or osseous ligament. Um, if they uh, occur in young children, the rate of spontaneous resolution is quite high, mm. up to about age 9 or maybe 10. Um, in adults, spontaneous resolution is rare. They tend to wax and wane, and the treatment options are to live with it. They're not dangerous, and if they're characteristic, I have no problem watching them. Um, if they're uncharacteristic and could be some other sort of a mass, then there's the whole diagnostic issue of getting them out of there. But if it's a characteristic ganglion, it waxes and wanes, it's been there for years, some patients just live with them. 
Other patients choose to have an aspiration, which unfortunately in my hands is associated with a very high recurrence rate. It almost is never a curative. Um, I think it was Bill Cooney at the Mayo Clinic did a study on it, found that 98% of his recurred on the palm side, but only about 50 to 60% recurred on the dorsum. I'm not that good on the dorsum. They almost always come back. Um, surgically, I just read a study not long ago that claimed a 40% recurrence rate with dorsal carpal ganglia. Mm. My own is, I've never looked it up, but I'm guessing it's probably in the 15% range. I've had one recur within six weeks of surgery. I had one recur 15 years after surgery. So we don't even really know if it's a recurrence or if whatever process started it in the first place makes another one. We just don't know the answer to that. So what does the cyst consist of? Is it fluid from the SL? We think it's flu or, uh, joint fluid or synovial fluid. Um, and for whatever reason, it coalesces outside of the joint. Is it produced by, is it a benign tumor? Is it some synovial cells that get loculated outside the joint? I'm not sure that's even known. Um, but it is filled with this characteristic thick gelatinous, it's often ca called straw colored. It's kind of brownish, clearish fluid. I just aspirated one today for a young girl who's going off to college and she doesn't want to have surgery. She just wants it smaller. And I could have brought the fluid along, but I pitched it. Huh. Do you usually test the fluid? No. No. Okay. No, not, nothing else in my experience does that. So, uh, and when I take, for years in surgery, I, when I took out a ganglion cyst, I would send it to pathology for confirmation. I've never of the first multiple thousands I did had anything else come up. So I save the patients the fee. Now, if it's a ganglion, I don't send it for hmm. any solid tumor. Of course I send, but, uh, to pathology for identification. Okay, interesting. And how about some of the dorsal capsule procedures that you would commonly see? Dorsal wrist to... capsule yeah. procedures. Yeah, well, um, that gets into the whole idea of mid-carpal or radiocarpal instability. And that is a little bit of a black box in the world of hand surgery. Um, mid-carpal instability is extremely common in, especially in young women, um, where um, the, the distal row of carpal bones is meant to move relative to the proximal row, but some people it moves too much. And it, it's common in young women who have looser ligaments in general anyway, and it can create soreness, especially in people who bear weight on their hands like gymnasts or dancers or people like that. Um, it, um, there's a school of thought that feel that Traumatic mid-carpal instability is related to the dorsal ligaments of the wrist, the mainly the dorsal radiocarpal ligaments. And there are a bunch of procedures described to plicate or imbricate or tighten those ligaments. Um, I have not done much in the way of um, soft tissue procedures for mid-carpal instability because I've found that patients, if they strengthen their secondary stabilizers, like their radial wrist extensors, the FCU, the ECU, and the FCR, they very often will be able to compensate until such time as they get older and it kind of corrects itself. The traumatic situation is different. If they have a fall and we have an MRI that shows that the dorsal radiocarpal ligament is detached from its attachment of the lunate, which it sometimes is, especially with the so-called palmar midcarpal instability, then a simple repair will often improve the patient's natural history. So that's kind of the dorsal stuff. Then there's the tendon dorsal stuff like uh, 
very commonly seen in infectious or other inflammatory extensor tenosynovitis. We see it after cat bites frequently. Back in the day before the biologics, I did a lot of synovectomies for rheumatoid arthritis. Thankfully, the new medicines, while they're expensive, are effective. And so I do a lot less in the way of synovectomy for rheumatoid arthritis than I did 20 years ago. Okay, Doc, let's talk about protocols. So do you have a certain platform that you use for protocols? Have you made your own over time? Or do you follow the Indiana Hand Protocol book? The short answer is all of the above. <laughs> okay. Um, I rely very heavily on our therapists here. I think our therapists here are excellent. Um, they do more um, current events type training in uh, hand therapy than I do. My protocols that I've developed over years are from input from the therapist in, during my training in Cincinnati, the surgeons down there. We do you take from the Indiana protocols, which have also evolved over the years. And uh, we've tweaked all of them. I don't think any of them are the same as when I started. And so we take input from Indiana. We take input from my long and longer than I'd like to say experience <laughs> and the excellent work of our therapists here. Is there feedback to our new staff, our new therapists here? As a surgeon, what are you looking for from the therapist during the healing phase of a post-surgical or even a trauma healing? What are you looking for from that therapist? From the therapist, I just basically want them to, um, safety is number one. I don't want, I want to be sure that the patient understands how to ruin the operation and how to avoid those things. Uh, for example, we don't want any active abduction after a massive rotator cuff repair, or we don't want any resisted flexion, significant resisted flexion after a flexor tendon repair. We don't want any simultaneous extension of the wrist and digits after a median nerve or ulnar nerve repair or something like that. Um, but I want, I want the therapist to uh, monitor the patients because a patient after a traumatic injury has a lot going on. Uh, with respect to the injury and with respect to their life outside the injury. And so I think it's up to the therapists who are able to see the patient more frequently and spend more time with the patient to be sure that they're doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And if anything's questionable, to bring it up and ask me. You know, I, that's a good point to bring up. I feel like sometimes we're just crunched for time between the time the surgeon has with the patient and then with the therapy time. I feel like we forget to, to talk about the precautions, the contraindications. It's more, this is what you need to do. This is why you need to wear the splint, but this is what not to do. And I think sometimes we need to start with that. I think that's true. So I need to work on that as a therapist. <laughs> I always tell my patients, here's how to wreck it. So don't do this. So maybe you're already covering that before they come over by us. <laughs> Just don't mess it up. That's right. All right. And before we move on to the three rapid questions, what are some takeaways uh, for our listeners? You know, we have our, our audience is mostly therapists, mostly hand therapists and some surgeons. So what, what is, what's a good takeaway from all your years of experience? Uh, you know, a takeaway, I think a takeaway is to be sure to listen to the patient because sometimes I learn more from saying, show me where it hurts than I do from the medical records and things of that nature. And still put your hands on the patient, even though uh, time is increasingly taken up by keyboards and mouses and uh, cathode ray tubes or monitors of various types. And uh, you got to put your hands on the patient. You got to listen to them and you got to you got to try and figure out what they're feeling. And if you are a non 
specialist, just be careful to to know what you're capable of and what you'd like some help with. And if you if there's something that that you'd like us to take a look at or 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 even just run a case by us on the phone, we're happy to do that at any time. We just want what's best for the patients. Great. All right, Dr. Cherney. So you've been putting up with us, educating us, speaking, but we're going to put you on the hot seat here with our three questions to end the show. Okay. Are you ready? I'm not afraid. I love it. <laughs> All right. So I want to know for those of you that do not know, Dr. Cherney is an avid guitar player. I'll once in a while walk by his office and try to get him to solo for me, but I want to know in your opinion, what is the greatest guitar solo of all time? The greatest guitar solo of all time. And this matters. People are listening. This may be controversial, but yes. I have a favorite of all time. Oh, okay. let's hear it. It's David Gilmore, comfortably numb. Wow. Okay. Great choice. Okay. I think obviously, right, people would say like cream crossroads sure. or stairway, right? Sure. But sure. Everybody sure. knows first rule, no stairway in the store. No stairway. That's a that's okay. a rule. Wow. That is a little yeah. bit of a controversial. I like that yeah. though. Listen to it. So okay. See I will. if you like it. Okay. And I'd like to know your favorite artist or band of all time. Like your favorite, your personal favorite. My personal favorite. Boy, it kind of depends on the day. Right. But the band that I have seen live the most and probably spent the most time and money listening to is Rush. Okay. Wow. Wow. I, I don't even it. know who that is. Are you serious? <laughs> I don't think so. Tom Sawyer? Like uh, that's like I'd have to listen to a song. Band music. Oh yeah. The drummer just Neil died. Bird? No, I grew up the with the Backstreet Boys, Dr. Okay. The Backstreet Boys. Yes, okay. I love them. <laughs> Arguably very the, guitar light. Yes. Arguably the greatest drummer of all time arguably some people might say john bonham but some okay. might say bonham yep love it limelight also ginger great baker song. some might say ginger baker. yep yep buddy roger we could go on yeah no idea all right and then as cassie mentioned you know you're a badger fan so i'm gonna give you i want to know we're gonna go start cut our bench okay for, okay are you ready for this for That's some annoying. of the badger running back so i want to know are you up on your team this year? I'm not this year. I'm not. Well, we'll have to oh, see. It'll be of all time. It'll be. Oh, let's, okay. Let's go. Years ago. Jonathan Taylor, Melvin Gordon, and Ron Dane. You got to start one, cut one, and bench one. Very controversial. Yes. I will start Melvin Gordon. Wow. I will bench uh, Jonathan Taylor, and I will cut Ron Dane. <gasps> wow. Whoa. The Heisman winner. The Heisman is winner. Is getting cut on your list. Holy cow. Okay. If I had to hand the ball to one Badger, I'd hand it to Melvin Gordon. Mm, I like that. Wow. Okay. Wow. That is definitely controversial. We won't, we'll make sure this gets banned in Madison. Around the I don't know. I, it might not be that controversial. It might not be because the train, the training has changed. Guys are faster, more athletic. And things all are of the college students never heard of Ron Dane until they look at the ring. That is true. Mm. That is true. All right, Doc. Well, you survived the hot seat, and uh, thanks for your time today. And how long are you going to practice yet? Oh, um, how long should I? Well, I probably have another thirty years. Another thirty years. So at least half that. I don't in fifth half of that. I'll be in my seventies. Uh, I'm okay so with I that. I don't think I'm going to make that. <laughs> It's the all-nighters, the, the middle-of-the-night arm reattachments that are going to wear me out. Mm. But um, um, I've probably got three or four more years left in me. 
Okay. Toivonen's unpacking his office right now, and and uh, yeah, he's making a commotion while we're taping. And he's younger this year. than I am. Oh, oh wow. well, that's not fair. Yeah. We'll have Twitter. a talk about that later. Twitter. Yeah, right. Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Oh, yeah, right. Thank All you right. very much, Dr. Trini. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. It was fun. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the Hand to Shoulder podcast with Dr. John Cherney. Hopefully you guys enjoyed those questions toward the end. They were a little bit different. But coming up next, and I don't even, what are we talking about next, Cassie? Can you tell our listeners? We have a special guest from Canada, actually. Um, He is so busy, we had to come in on a Saturday to do his uh, interview. So we're talking with Dr. Donald Lalonde, who is from the Division of Plastic Surgery in St. John, Canada. And he's going to talk to us about his wide awake flexor tendon, not only his surgery, what he does, how he developed this. But also Amanda, his uh, physical therapist that he works for, how they together uh, form the protocol that we pretty much follow um, nationally and internationally with the new uh, system of wide awake flexor tendon repairs. Yeah, we look forward to you guys listening to the episode. And for those of you that haven't heard of it, um, it's going to be something new, might be revolutionary for you guys to talk to the surgeons you're working about how to rehab your flexor tendons. But as always, make sure if there's anything you guys want Cassie or I to cover on the podcast or any topics you want to hear, make sure you guys reach out to us at H2, the, le- the number two, letter S, therapist at newhands, one word, dot net. And we'll catch you on the next episode.